We are uh, going to start a new learning journey this morning that will take us um, up until the, t- the season of Lent as we get ready uh, to enter into Easter this spring. And so if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in the book of Exodus chapter 20, and uh, we're going to start um, a, a conversation, extended conversation around this thing or these things called the Ten Commandments. And um, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of my thinking in terms of why we sense that this is something that God would be calling us to pay attention to um, in this season, and there's several reasons. Um, the first is that if you pay attention throughout uh, church history, and especially starting with the Reformation, um, when there was a major overhaul of Christian thought and practice in terms of as we deconstruct some of the power structures that were happening in the Catholic Church at the time, and there was this new, fresh movement of asking the question, what does it look like for us to faithfully follow Jesus as the people of God in the world we live in? And so there had been so much corruption and perversion of the Christian faith that there was a movement to strip it back down and say, what are the essentials about what the scripture teaches about who God is and what it means? means to live our life fully in and with him. And what emerged from that question was really that there needs to be a new set of basic teachings or a Christian primer, the, ba- the very basic and foundational truths in order to understand the invitation of the gospel. And so reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin and others began putting together uh, these curriculum that were designed to be, uh, here is the foundation of what you must understand for to, to understand Christian teaching, Orthodox Christian teaching. And almost all of those primers that were put together were made up of three basic components. The first was the Apostles' Creed, the second was the Ten Commandments, and the third was the Lord's Prayer. The creed, the commands, and the prayer have for hundreds of years now served as the foundational basis of Christian teaching that one would use uh, in order to become familiar with what the Bible teaches about God and life and life with God. And so, as you know, this last uh, fall, we went through the Apostles' Creed, this ancient summary or really a pledge of allegiance uh, to the God of the Bible that lays out uh, what, what it is that God has revealed about himself as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This morning, we'll begin a 10-week journey through the Ten Commandments, and if you have any guesses where we're going to go in the spring, you would be right. We will hit the Lord's Prayer. And um, so for us, I think it's a really important thing to understand that we are part of something that goes way back, that we aren't making this up as we go. But for me, there's an incredible sense of confidence and security knowing that the faith that we participate in as followers of Jesus is a received faith. It's a faith that's been passed down for generations and generations, over thousands of years now. And there's strength and security in knowing that this isn't some trendy, latest, greatest fad or something like that. And so we want to root ourselves and identify with the historic uh, Christian church. Now, there's other reasons why I think it's helpful for us to engage in a conversation about the Ten Commandments, and we'll get to that um, in a few moments. Now, I would guess... Um, that if you're over 50, 
then the Ten Commandments were probably part of your faith formation or even your public education if you grew up in the States. That if you, you grew up in a church where you memorized the Ten Commandments, they were probably posted on the wall um, for sure of your Sunday school classroom, but maybe even your school ca- classroom. And it was something that we spoke of, memorized, maybe you knew a song or something like that. But I would guess that if you're under 50, then you are familiar with the idea of the Ten Commandments, but they're not something that you've actually spent a whole lot of time on. And there's various reasons for that. For some of us, when we start thinking about commandments or the Old Testament and specifically the laws that God gave to Israel, we think, yeah, that is part of the story, but it's really not for us that we now, um, as New Testament Christians, so to speak, we are freed from the obligation to keep the law, and we aren't saved by obeying commandments, but we're saved by the grace of Jesus through faith. Is that true? It absolutely is. But I would argue that our commitment to the gospel of grace uh, shouldn't cause us to be ignorant of the story that we are part of. And so I want to show you a clip. I hesitated because it's pretty harsh, but several years ago, uh, Stephen Colbert hosted a, uh, a congressman from the state of Georgia who was heading up an initiative to get the Ten Commandments uh, hung on the walls in uh, public uh, in federal courthouse buildings. And I just have to show you one minute long how that interview went. Sponsored a bill requiring the display of the Ten Commandments in the House of Representatives and the Senate. Mm-hmm. Why was that important to you? Well, the Ten Commandments is is not a bad thing uh, for people to understand and to respect. I'm with you. Where better place could you have something like that than in a judicial building mm-hmm. or in a courthouse? That is a good question. Can you think of any better? building to put the Ten Commandments in than in a public building? No. I think if we were totally without them, we may lose a sense of our direction. What are the Ten Commandments? What are all of them? You want me to name them all? Yeah, please. Don't murder. Don't lie. Mm Don't steal. Uh, I can't name them all. Congressman, thank you for taking time away from keeping the Sabbath day holy. Just brutal, and there's so much we could talk about there. Um, and but I do think it raises a couple interesting conversations for us. Um, Throughout uh, kind of the history of the modern West, the Ten Commandments have been held up as kind of this timeless, universal set of moral and ethical principles um, that have caused many to think that these things um, are meant to serve as a, a set of a moral template for humanity. And of course, if that's your perspective, then it would make sense that we would want them publicly displayed in government buildings or something like that. But the truth is, as we'll see as we move through this series, is that these commands were never 
meant to be a moral imperative that was binding for all humanity, as much as there is wisdom in paying attention to them, but this set of commands or words was given to a specific set of people at a specific point in time for a specific purpose. That the language that we engage in chapter 20 of Exodus is what you would call covenant language. That it's an agreement between God and specifically the God who identifies himself as Yahweh and his chosen people of Israel. And so there is a very specific role that each of these words was meant to speak to that community for a specific purpose. And so first of all, I would say, I, for us, the battle isn't to try to get these publicly displayed around the world, but as the people of God, as people who are coming out of this story and built upon it, that first and foremost, we would come to embrace this part of the scripture for ourselves, Rather than trying to impose it upon those that don't worship Yahweh, the point is that for those who do, these would be part of how our faith and practice is formed as followers of Jesus. Okay, so that's the first thing I'd say. Secondly, it's really easy to make fun of that guy and be ashamed of him, but the truth is, I don't know how many of us could do any better, right, if we're honest. Um, We know that the Ten Commandments exist and that they're probably a good idea, but if we tried to list them all out, um, I'm I'm guessing most of us would have a hard time doing that. And the truth is, there's lots of parts of the scripture that are like that for many of us. Last week, we talked about on Epiphany Sunday, the gift that God has revealed himself to us through creation and through the Bible. But the truth is that many of us don't create the space in our lives to listen to God to receive his revelation through creation and scripture. And so Bible in general and specifically Ten Commandments, I think if we're honest, a lot of us treat it like the software agreement that pops up on your computer. (laughs) You don't actually read it. You just click agree, right? And for us, we want to be a people that actually is engaging and immersed in the scriptures, in God's revelation. And so when it comes to the Ten Commandments, we don't want to just trumpet the idea that, yeah, they're good, but we actually would do well to immerse ourselves within this part of the narrative and see what it is uh, that we can learn. So let's, let me give you a little bit of backstory when we come to Exodus chapter 20. We know that God's people, the Israelites, had been called, beginning with a covenant, but with a guy by the name of Abraham. And God chose Abraham and his family to begin this incredible redemptive movement that would ultimately culminate in the coming of Christ and this promise of all things made new or all things reconciled. And so the way God chose to carry out his rescue mission for his fallen and broken world was through a family a particular family. And he makes this deal with them early on in the book of Genesis, and he says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will bless you, and I will make you a blessing 
and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, what we call the Abrahamic covenant. And so from the very beginning, the deal that God had with his people is that he would belong to them and they would belong to him, that they would exist in a deep, beautiful, life-giving relationship, the kind of relationship that God always intended humanity to have with himself. And he says that I will bless you, meaning I will give myself to you. I will be with you. I will be there for you. Whatever you need, no matter what happens, I am with you. I will bless you, and I will make you a great blessing. And all nations on earth will be blessed through you. And so the idea is not just that Israel would live this private, secluded life, enjoying the comforts of their salvation, but that they would take all the blessing, all the love, all the life that they received from God, and rather than being a cul-de-sac, they would be a freeway through which God's life and love and blessing could flow out to the ends of the earth. So what this meant is that in the ancient world, if an Israelite family moved into the neighborhood, that would be very good news because they understood that they were blessed to be a blessing, that anything that they had wasn't just for their own comfort or their own sake, but it was to be shared and enjoyed by others. So you're stoked if your Israelite neighbor shows up and if he's got a jet ski, you've got a jet ski, right? And if he's got a hot tub, you've got a hot tub. And whatever it is that the Israelites received from God, the hope was that they would then be an expression of that from God into the world. And so what this meant is that Israel was was required by God or invited by God to live set apart, to live in a radically different way than all the other nations and groups around them. That God had a specific design for life that Israel uh, was invited to live into so that they could model for the rest of creation what it looks like to live in right relationship with God and yourself and one another and the rest of the world. Now what ends up happening eventually though is that the land that God had given Abraham and his family went dry And so Abraham and his family eventually moved to this place called Egypt with the hopes that they could find a a new season of life there. And for a while it was good until eventually this nation of Israel is taken over and becomes slaves in Egypt. And for 400 years, for multiple generations, the family of God's people lives under horrible, oppressive slavery. Now, you would think that would be the end of the story, but God's not done with this family yet. He's committed to working out his promises through them. And so, he, we, as we know, he raises up this guy by the name of Moses. And Moses is the one God calls and sends to go and to lead God's people out of Egypt, out of slavery. And we know the whole story with the 10 plagues and that sort of thing and how God miraculously parts the Red Sea so that the Israelites can march through on dry land. At the the end of the Red Sea, they end up out in the wilderness. And we know that then for 40 years, they spend time wandering around the wilderness waiting for God to lead them into this promised land. And so the Ten Commandments come probably about three months 
after the parting of the Red Sea, after the Exodus story. In verse one, God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Okay, so the context that all of these commands are gonna fall under now is God identifying himself and reminding his people who he is, what it is that he's done for them. And everything that follows in the next 16 verses could have a therefore in front of it. Because I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, therefore, here's how I would invite you to order your lives. So for many of us that have engaged the Ten Commandments at some point in our past, in Sunday school or youth group or Awanas or, remember Awanas? Anybody? Little weird vests where you get jewels in your crown for memorizing verses. Oh man, it was weird. And then you run around a circle with a beanbag on your head. And um, if you don't know what that is, that's okay. You're all right. But if for a lot of us, we would come to the Ten Commandments and they would essentially present themselves to us as red lights as giant warning signs, as authoritative laws from a dictator God that has really staunch and stuffy and difficult rules about the way he commands his people to live. And they were like these flashing red lights that said, even if we trespass just one of these, then we're cursed or we're damned and we're going straight to hell or something like that. But what we see in the context is that God doesn't give these commands to enslave his people. They're not a red light, they're a green light. They're not meant to be received so much with a sense of fear or a sense of dominance or a sense of oppression, but they're a green light to freedom. The Ten Commandments weren't given as a requirement for salvation. They are meant to be a response to the salvation God has already provided. The Ten Commandments aren't the way to get out of slavery. They were meant to be a gift from God as an invitation to live in the freedom of his kingdom, the freedom that he has already provided. And so again, these weren't commandments given to the whole world, but it was really a covenant or a legal agreement between God and his covenant people Israel, and the reason why they exist is so that Israel would learn the ways of freedom after coming out of 400 years of slavery and oppression, and so that by learning to live these rhythms of freedom, this covenant promise again that God could bless them and they would be a blessing to the world would once again be enacted. And so for those that work today around the crisis of modern slavery, it's easy for us to live in complete ignorance of this, but those that actually are engaged in this work will tell us that there's actually more human slaves on earth right now than there has been at any other point in history. And obviously we're familiar with the crisis of human trafficking and sex trafficking, that sort of thing, but it takes all different forms 
of forced labor and, and, uh, and a hor- horrible reality for millions of people today. And for those that are doing this work of trying to not only prevent but actually liberate modern-day slaves, what they'll often say is something like this, that it only takes a week to get somebody out of slavery, but it takes years to get the slavery out of that person, right? We can, be, that we can come out of slavery in an instant, but it takes a lifetime for slavery to come out of us, which is what makes this rescue and justice work in modern slavery so hard, right? There's so many reasons that people are drawn back through forced addiction and that sort of thing. And it's really the same picture that we have here of God's people. After 400 years, generations, people that had only known slavery in Egypt their entire lives, all of a sudden they're brought out into the wilderness and they don't know how to be free. They don't know, they haven't had to make decisions for themselves. They haven't had to try to order a society where life could flourish. They simply have been oppressed and enslaved. And now all of a sudden, they're out of slavery, but the slavery isn't out of them yet. And so God, in his grace, in his faithfulness, and in his wisdom, he comes and he says, as the Lord, your God, your God, not just a God or the God, but your God, as the one who brought you out of Egypt, as the one who brought you out of the land of slavery, here's my invitation to freedom. Here's what it looks like for you to live and thrive and flourish, not just individually, but as a community of my chosen, holy, dearly loved people in the world. These rules weren't meant to be oppressive, the exact opposite. But this was a gift given by a gracious, faithful God to help get the slavery out of his people. And as we study these over the next couple months, we'll see that there's so much richness, so much beauty, so much meat here, that even though it's thousands of years ago, thousands of miles away in a different cultural context and a different point in history, that there's so much that we can glean here as followers of Christ. Starting with the idea that as we examine these commandments, what we have is another revelation on God's part. That before we even talk about what does it mean to be faithful or obedience to these words, we talk about what do these words reveal to us about the character of God? What kind of God do we have? And that's why we start with understanding and focusing the importance of that this is the Lord, Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. Um, several weeks ago, during Advent, we were talking about the, um, what was it called? Divine incarn- Incarnate Deity. Thank you. Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> and what it is that we can learn about what God is like through the story of Christmas. Um, the story of God becoming 
human in Jesus. And one of the ideas we looked at is that in Christ, God reveals himself as a self-limiting God. That in his humility and his love, he empties himself of his power and some of his ability and his prominent place of glory in, in the universe, and he humbles himself and becomes this little baby. And I want to show you again this uh, little diagram that we looked at several weeks ago because I know it's resonated with many of you. It comes from a work of a sociologist whose name I can't remember right now, but wrote the book, uh, The Fifth Practice. And his theory is that for human flourishing to exist, for life to be good, not just at the external surface of everything's good, but like, um, but deep, robust harmony and flourishing of the soul that a human would need to have all three of these tanks fulfilled within their life. And again, not just thinking about it as individuals, but think about it as communities within societies, that we need meaning, we need community, and we need freedom. And if any of those things are limited, or if any of those tanks are empty or dry, then our experience of flourishing is going to be diminished, right? And so for those that are living under oppression, like Israel was in Egypt, they had no freedom that life wasn't flourishing. For those that live in isolation or in solitude without meaningful relationships and someone to love and be loved by, the community tank is dry. And without a sense of meaning, without a sense of purpose, without a belief that my life matters, that there's a point to this story without meaning, then we fail to flourish as well. And so this particular uh, sociologist, his name I'm still forgetting, says, here's the modern day reality for Americans. In the modern West, here's what our tanks look like. He says the meaning tank is very low, the community tank is not doing so hot, and the freedom tank is overflowing. That we live in a day and an age where we have really unlimited freedoms. And if you think about it through the lens of our identity within this system as consumers, that we show up at the grocery store and there's 37 kinds of ketchup, right? Or if we want to buy something, we literally get on Amazon and the whole world's worth of good and services is available at the click of a button. That we have the ability, many of us, uh, especially those of us with white skin, we have the freedom to move, the freedom to migrate, the freedom to move freely around the world and throughout borders and that sort of thing. That we live in an era of unprecedented individual and human freedom. And he's saying, the reality is, you would think that's a good thing. It sounds super American. But the truth is, that with this overflowing tank, our meaning and community tanks are bone dry. Okay, so just flesh that out in, in really simple terms. That if you want to enter in and uh, to meaningful relationships and go about seeing your community tank filled, what is it going to require of you to be in a covenant long-term relationship? Think about marriage, for example. What do we do when we get married? We self-impose a limitation upon our freedoms. We say, I'm no longer going to see other people, pursue other people, date other people. I'm going to 
limit that freedom in my own life for the sake of committing to this covenant relationship, right? And if we are unwilling to do that, if we're unwilling to self-limit our freedoms, then we will enjoy a life of tons of freedom, but our, our sense of community and our sense of meaning is gonna continue to be dry. And what sociologists talk about is that the canary in the coal mine for this reality is cultural anxiety, cultural exhaustion, a sense of depression, or to put it really bluntly, yeah, you have all the freedom in the world, but let me ask you honestly, are you happy? Are you happy? And it's obvious that at increasing rates, the cultural response would be to, to say we're not. So part of being a church family, for example, is, is saying that I'm going to limit my freedoms by committing to a community. I'm going to carve out time and space and on Sundays every week to gather for worship with the people of God. I'm going to carve out time and space every Wednesday night or whatever it is to gather with my home community or with my small group. I'm going to commit myself to these various expressions of community. And yeah, it limits my freedom. I'm going to commit the first 10% of my income to God's kingdom work. Yeah, that limits my freedom. But the hope and the promise is that through self-limitation of freedoms, we find a deeper sense of meaning and a stronger experience of community. And I could give example after example after example of how this shows up and shapes our lives. But in a very strange way, the parallel is that as a modern people that are experiencing an overwhelming tank of freedom, more freedom than we know what to do with, more freedom than is good for us, we find ourselves living in the same space as Israel those first three months in the wilderness. After centuries in enslaved oppression, they're now liberated and have no idea what to do with themselves. And God, as a gift of grace, and as an expression of his covenant faithfulness, says, here's an invitation to life, a life of true freedom. Self-limit. Impose these limitations upon yourselves. Not because I'm some angry dictator who wants everybody to do what I say all the time, but because I long for you to live a life of meaning, a life of deep relationship with me and with one another. Tim Keller talks about the idea that for many of us in the modern world, our concept of freedom, our definition of freedom, is the ability to do whatever I want. And for a lot of us, that is true in lots of areas of life. We can kind of choose our cultural affiliation. We can choose where we're going to live, what we're going to do, who we're going to hang out with, how we're going to identify ourselves. And there's beauty to freedom. But there's also many complications with that definition of freedom. 
The first being that we are creatures of conflicted desire. Are we not? We want things that, are, that contradict one another. We want this really bad, but we also want this really bad, and we can't have both. So to tell me freedom is the freedom to have or to do whatever I want actually doesn't lead me to life at all, does it? Right? I want to be fit and healthy, and I also want to eat pizza and drink beer all the time. (laughs) I genuinely want both of those things. And if you're to tell me, yeah, you're free to do whatever you want, that doesn't help, does it? I want to be a loyal, loving, faithful husband to Jen. And I also want my eyes and my imagination and my affections to wander. Don't tell me I can do whatever I want. So here's what Keller says. Modern people like to see freedom as the complete absence of any constraints. But think of a fish. Because a fish absorbs oxygen from water, not air, it is free only if it's restricted to water. If a fish is freed from the river and put on the grass to explore, its freedom to move and soon even to live is destroyed. The fish is not more free but less free if it cannot honor the reality of its nature. The same is true with airplanes and birds. If they violate the laws of aerodynamics, they will crash into the ground. But if they follow them, they will ascend and soar. The same is true in many areas of life. Freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones, those that fit with the realities of our own nature and those of the world. What a beautiful and different picture of freedom that the Bible would give us. Saying not that there are no limitations, that we are free to do whatever we want, but rather as we discern what is the purpose and meaning of my life, that who has God created and redeemed me to be, then the only way to thrive and to flourish is to accept those limitations and to receive them like the fish would receive the ocean. This is the water I'm meant to swim in. And I think that's what God is doing when he gives Israel the 10 words, the Decalogue. This is my invitation to life. This is the the way to grow and to thrive and to flourish as a freed people. See, the wilderness for God's people was really a halfway house. It was the place where he was committed to taking the slavery out of them, for transitioning them from a life of imprisonment to a life of liberation. And slavery throughout the scriptures then, becomes a metaphor for sin. That though most of us will never physically be enslaved to another, we actually know what it feels like at a soul level to be controlled, to be overpowered, to be oppressed by these other other powers 
And if you don't believe me that sin is like slavery, then I would say, well, then why don't you just stop sinning? And we've all tried that. We're enslaved to a disordered reality by putting other gods in Yahweh's place, by failing to love him and love our neighbors as we love ourselves, by failing to live as God's covenant community people as a, as a light post of mission to the world. And so the good news is that as God reveals himself as Yahweh, do you know what the name Jesus means? It means Yahweh saves. That part of what we'll find as we read through these 10 words is that none of us will ever live them out perfectly. In fact, let's just start with the first one. No other gods. No other allegiance. No other loyalty to anyone above me. We're going to spend our lives learning to live in that invitation. And so what these 10 words do, in, in addition to being a paradigm for liberation, is that they serve to confront and convict us of our need for salvation. And ultimately, we come at, to this story on the other side of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, looking back and saying, yeah, just like Israel, it's not that we want to try to keep these commands in order to be saved or in order to be justified or in order to have good standing with God. We have already received all of that. We are saved. We are justified. We are in good standing with God because of Jesus. Because he's the one human who has perfectly lived the life that God called us to live. And so... This begins our invitation to a journey through the 10 words, the 10 commandments, as an invitation to freedom. Not just to click agree, but to actually engage, to wrestle, to study, to commit ourselves to learning whatever it is that the Spirit of God has for us as we strive to be the people of God, blessed by him to be a blessing to the world. Will you stand and pray with me? Father, we're thankful for your faithfulness to your people and that we now, by your grace, have been included in this epic narrative of redemption, hope for the world, a restored humanity, a world marked by true peace and justice where humans and all life can flourish together in your unshakable kingdom. God, thank you that you don't give up on us as we see throughout this story, even when humans screw up this plan and drop their end of the deal over and over again, you continue to be faithful, to pursue, to keep your promises and accomplish your purposes in us and through us. And so we're just grateful to be part of this. And we're thankful for Jesus who saves, who lived the life we were supposed to live, died the death we were supposed to die, has invited us to live fully with you in his name as your people in this world. 
And so we pray over these next couple months as we engage in this journey together. Lord, I pray that it wouldn't just be interesting or informational, but it would be an opportunity for your spirit to continue the good work you've started in us in forming the image of your son in this people for the sake of your glory and the joy of the world. In Jesus' name we pray.